Hi, I'm Julia. I'm a filmmaker and I make documentaries about the ocean and big issues facing the natural world. And my kind of best case scenario for the future is a world where the oceans are full of fish and we have forests on land and prairies and every part of the world is covered in the kind of natural community that is meant to be there and is thriving and abundant and full of life. And humans live in communities where they're connected with each other and share things and have gift economies and um, relate to the natural world in the way that we should and the way that we evolved for. Um, and we're much more connected and uh, living in balance, which is the only way we can survive on this planet. So it's gotta happen. Hi, I'm Mark Laren Young, and thanks for joining me for Scanna, a podcast about orcas, oceans, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. When most people talk about being inspired by Canadian eco-hero Rob Stewart, they talk about Shark Water, the documentary that changed the way the world saw sharks. For Julia Barnes, it was Rob's second movie that rocked her world, Revolution, his movie about how if we really want to save the sharks and the whales and ourselves, we need to save the oceans. Julia was a teenager when she was inspired to literally dive into those oceans and follow Rob's documentary with her own. She was one of our earliest guests on Scanner. She's also the only guest I'd never interviewed before. Our producer, Rain Banu, met Julia at Planet in Focus. Rain was there showing our movie, The Hundred-Year-Old Whale. Julia was showing her movie, Sea of Life. Julia's new movie, Bright Green Lies, may require a trigger warning for some scandal listeners because her target is the environmental movement and the idea that clean energy is clean and that development is renewable, sustainable, or safe for the planet. As always, Scan is brought to you by our pod at patreon.com. So if you like what we're up to, please help us share more stories in 2021 by joining our pod and sponsoring us at patreon.com backslash Scanna. You can also visit our site, Scanna.org, where you can make one-time donations via Ko-fi. Also, please subscribe. You can do that right now. Just click the button. It's so easy. Or you can buy my books about orcas. Find out more about my whale books, ebooks, audio versions at orcaseverywhere.com. Or buy my books that aren't about orcas, like Never Shoot a Stampede Queen, which won the Leacock Medal for Humor. These books are all for sale wherever you buy books. And if you can support your local bookstore, that would be fantastic. Also, please check out our new podcast, Orca Bites, where we feature some shorter bite-sized pieces about orcas, oceans, and eco-ethics with guests like Wade Davis, Alexandra Morton, and Carl Safina. Quick heads up, like most of our recent interviews, this was recorded using the magic of Zoom. However, once in a while, Zoom cuts out, and there are a few glitches in this interview. So apologies for the occasional shifts in volume. And now, Julia Barnes.
Hello. Hey. How are you doing? Good. How about you? I realize you're the first, you're the only person we've ever ha had on the show that I've never met. I've emailed a million times, but we've never actually met. Yes. <laughs> this is very cool. Uh, so, since we are starting off in COVID world, how are you? Where are you? I am at home and I'm busy doing lots of editing, um, working on the release of Bright Green Lies, which is a huge project in and of itself, and also doing some short film things. Um, interviewing people over Zoom and having all sorts of fun, trying to figure out how to save the world in COVID times. So it's interesting. So explain the concept of Bright Green Lies. Bright Green Lies is a documentary about the kind of huge misconceptions that exist surrounding uh, what's called renewable energy. Um, so we've got all sorts of technologies that are being touted as clean and green and sustainable and awesome. And these are gonna save the world. And it's really strange. I don't actually know how these ideas have perpetuated themselves for so long because you don't have to look that far to realize that these technologies are made from something and that comes from somewhere and that somewhere was somebody's home and it had to be destroyed and trees had to be cleared in order to put in a mine. And you can just follow this trail of destruction all around the world. And um, the fact that this is being called green is just a complete betrayal of the natural world. And there's a lot of levels to this and you can let me know how far you wanna go into any of it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a film about um, the deception that has been going on and revealing a lot of truths that might be hard for people to come to terms with, but are the most important truths that we have to understand. Because if we are going to succeed in protecting life on this planet, we absolutely cannot have a movement that is pushing false solutions. Like that's not going to work. We can't keep going down this road for the next 10 years and then realize, oh shit, this didn't work. Can I get you to talk about what these false solutions are? Because I pretty much guarantee, like having watched your movie, that when you list off the false solutions, they're at the heart of what most of us think we should be doing. So I think as you share them, you're going to hear the crackle of hearts breaking among SCANA listeners as they find out that Renewables may not be renewable and sustainable may not be sustainable. Yep. Um, the things that we cover in the film, which by no means is everything that is a false solution, but it's uh, solar, wind, hydro, biomass, electric cars, the idea that we can shop our way to sustainability and have green consumerism. Um, yeah. We've got a really, really big and impassioned environmental movement right now. But it has basically been so co-opted that it's turned into a de facto lobbying arm for a particular sector of the industrial economy, one that is destroying life on the planet. Um, so this is a disaster that needs to be rectified very quickly. And I hope that this film will be a big part of that. I've got to tell you, biomass was the one that shocked me most. And I saw this in your film and I saw this in Planet of the Humans. Now. I lived in a logging town for a while. And so I had assumed 
that biomass was the leftover branches, whatever, from mills that, you know, when I lived in the logging town, all of that went into these, they were called beehive burners. So you took, it, like anything that wasn't lumber, went into a beehive burner and basically became soot that, you know, like, was like, hi, let's turn this wood into pollution. Let's see, what's the fast way to do it? We'll burn it. So, like, I lived in a town called Williams Lake. There were car washes on every corner to clean off the wood waste. So when I heard biomass, I thought, oh, it's that. It's leftover stuff. I was floored to discover biomass meant cutting forests. Can you please explain? Uh, they like to market it as if it's wood waste. That's definitely a big talking point of the industry. And the reality is definitely not that. I mean, that's a small portion of it. They do burn wood waste. They also burn old railway ties. And the pollution from that is pretty horrible because all that has been treated with uh, bad, bad things that you don't really want to breathe in. Um, but a lot of it comes from actual forests that they chop down the clear-cut vast areas in order to burn it for biomass. And this is something that is being counted as carbon neutral through some weird accounting scheme that somebody came up with because it's it's couldn't be further from carbon neutral. Um, biomass emits more carbon per unit of energy than a coal plant does. Um, and it also takes away forests that would otherwise be sequestering carbon. So there's this huge loss. It disturbs the soil and then the soil starts emitting carbon. It's just a disaster spiral. Um, not clean and green, like you might be told. Now, do you want to walk through the other technologies and break some more hearts? Sure, absolutely. Where do you want to start? Oh, let's go solar wind hydro. Let's try that order. Sure. Um, so solar uh, panels, there's different um, models of them, but pretty commonly they'll involve steel, which has to be mined from somewhere. It has to be smelted. It involves silicon. So there's actually entire islands off the coast of China that have been mined out of existence to produce the silicon to make solar panels. Um, it involves rare earths. It also involves some really weird um, greenhouse gases that are many times more potent than CO2. We don't get into the details of that in the film, but yeah, there's some toxic uh, things that go into them. Um, all of this requires a globalized industrial economy. It requires manufacturing, shipping of parts from all around the world. You can't just make a solar panel in your backyard or in your local environment. And Every stage of the production process involves fossil fuels being burned. And many of the things just simply cannot be powered by things like solar or wind. So that's that's the how it's made kind of destructiveness. Uh, we can also look at how, I mean, the process like that would be the same for something like uh, wind turbine, of course. With those, there's metals involved. There's also some radioactive waste that gets produced when they make the magnets that are involved in some of the wind turbines and then there's the fact that they harm the land where they're installed they harm birds and bats 
Um, so there's there's the harm on that level, but then the kind of deeper level is the fact that the energy that is produced from these technologies, the, the whole kind of point and the reason that we're being sold these is because they're supposed to reduce emissions, they're supposed to replace fossil fuels, but the reality is that that's not actually what happens. This energy is being added to the grid and it's just additional energy. It just, we become a more high energy consumptive uh, society. We don't actually see any decrease in the use of other fuel sources as things like solar and wind are being added to the grid. We live in a growth economy and in fact, the growth of energy demand is exceeding the rate at which solar or wind is even being added to the grid. So it's having no effect on, on the emissions of CO2, except that it's adding to it, it's adding emissions. Um, and then hydro is kind of this whole other thing where dams have been called methane bombs because they actually release so much methane. That's because it's a process where the water level is rising and falling. When that happens, uh, plants get inundated, they decompose anaerobically underwater and the process releases a whole bunch of methane. So dams are often being counted as uh, you know, not causing emissions and grain and that couldn't be farther from the truth. They're, they're quite bad in terms of uh, greenhouse gas effects. Now, before we go much further down this rabbit hole, let's set some context for you. Can you talk about how you got involved in the environmental world to begin with? Uh, your inspiration from Rob Stewart and how Sea of Life happened? Mm -hmm. I got involved in this when I was 16. I watched this documentary called Revolution, which is by Rob Stewart. And, you know, I went into the theater on the first day that it was screening. I watched the film and I came out uh, completely changed like it turned my life upside down every plan that I had had went out the window and I was just like okay I've just learned that everything I love is in jeopardy and the world is being destroyed and this is crazy and I'm gonna do something uh, about it and and try and change things so it was like about a week after watching revolution that I bought a video camera and decided I was gonna make a documentary about what's happening to the ocean so I ended up spending the next three years working on this film. At first I thought I would finish it in a month. Um, and yeah, it became a much longer process. Oh, I can so relate to that. <laughs> I, I can so relate to that sitting here like decade and change into trying to make a movie that I thought would take me a few months. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it happens. Um, so it was, a, it was a really big education about what's happening to the natural world for me. And it was also a movie that, um, it was just cool to see what the reaction was and to see that, you know, making a film could have some kind of impact. I mean, a lot of people watched it and told me that it changed their lives and that they were gonna go into ocean conservation because of this. So it was my film school and it was my education about what's happening. And um, that was how the process started. And it was actually towards the end of making that movie, the last person who I interviewed was Derek Jensen and he, told me about this book that he was working on called Bright Green Lies. And he told me a couple facts about how destructive these uh, mainstream so-called solutions actually are. And immediately I knew that that's what I had to make my next documentary about. Can you talk a little bit about the book? Like, did you, how much did your documentary spin out of the book? There are 
definitely two separate things. It's not so much that I would say it's, I mean, they cover the same basic concepts and the idea that, that these technologies are really harmful. Um, but the book goes into extreme detail and gives lots of examples and has so much evidence backing things up. Um, it's definitely something that you have to read on top of watching the film. Um, it's really good. I, I read a pretty early draft of it partway through making this documentary. And yeah, the film explores the same ideas and the three authors of the book are the main people who are interviewed in the documentary. So they've got a lot to say about this stuff and they're, they're really brilliant. Now, there's another movie that we've talked about that just came out. You've been on panels with them, The Planet of the Humans which is known as the Michael Moore documentary, even though he just, you know, he was the producer, not the creator of it. Um, Planet of the Humans covers some of the same turf as this and just had tremendous, a mix of pushback and, uh, wow, uh, fury from a lot of environmentalists I know. Can you talk about Planet of the Humans, the relationship between your movie and that movie and the responses it's received and the responses you're bracing for? I think it's really telling. It, it was fascinating to watch what happened after that film came out. Um, somebody emailed me the day after it came out and sent me a link. So I watched the movie. And then I had people emailing me with all these articles or reviews where people were bashing the movie. And I was like, a, a lot of it was so strange because they were accusing them of being racist and saying all these things in their film. And I was like, did I watch the same movie? I don't, I didn't catch those things. Um, but I think the backlash and the, the anger that was put towards the film just really shows how attached some people are to these ideas that, that the technologies are gonna save things and that, um, you know, all we have to do is tweak a few things and we can keep living the lifestyle that we have and we don't have to worry too much about anything. That's a story that a lot of people want to hear and want to believe in. And also, I just think a lot of people uh, who have considered themselves environmentalists have been promoting these ideas for a very long time. And so to admit that that these technologies aren't actually good for the planet, it's kind of like saying, you know, I've been saying something that's wrong for a very long time. And a lot of people just don't really want to admit that or come around to that. Um, so yeah, that's been interesting to watch and I'm, I'm fully expecting to get a whole load of criticism as well, but I think criticism also is another form of advertising for a film. It's not the worst thing and I'm not too worried about it. Well, I felt some of what happened with Planet of the Humans and it was one of the big critiques that I saw was that it was filmed over so many years and that when people changed their minds or when tech changed, that wasn't acknowledged in the film. And yours feels like it's filmed over a tighter time frame and doesn't... You don't seem to generalize as much. Like you, you're, you seem to sort of hit specifics and go, these are the facts about this, and then you move on to the next thing. So it feels like you're coming at it. It feels like your approach is different and that's going to, that makes it more challenging. I think to come at what you're saying. It'll be interesting to see what they come up with. <laughs> I, th I think I've made a film that is, I mean, 
it is honest to everything that I know. And I think it's pretty solid and, and bulletproof in terms of being criticized for facts or anything like that. But it seems like people who want to bash something like this will find something or make something up. So I don't know. It'll be fun to see what happens. Well, I think one of the things with Planet of the Humans was that Bill McKibben was like, I, you know, changed my mind on biomass X number of years ago. And that wasn't acknowledged. There were things, that's one of the things I remember coming up. And it doesn't feel like you have the same sort of things in your movie. One thing that really hit me about your movie was your interview with David Suzuki, where he did not look like he was having the best of times talking to you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't know what to say. I don't want to like give away the whole conversation because when you watch the movie, you'll see it and you'll get to experience it just like I did. Um, it was really interesting. I don't know. I kind of just went in being like, all right, I'm here to speak on behalf of the natural world and I'm going to ask some questions that are going to make me feel really uncomfortable, but it's got to be done. And yeah, I just, I wanted to see what he thought. And, you know, I asked other people, other environmentalists who promote these kind of technologies. It's, it's just really interesting what the justifications are and then being able to bounce things off that and, and say, okay, well, this person says this, but let's look further into that and let's see if that's true. And yeah, it was a it was a good way to kind of weave things through the story of the film, dig in a bit deeper. I remember when I first really got into learning carbon math. I was working on a book with Sapora Berman, and she was talking about her carbon, you know, her uh, basically climate awakening was the way she phrased it, and. I remember finding this book, uh, like she would talk about starting to do the carbon math and going, wow, does it take longer for this thing that I thought was good for the planet? Like, what's the carbon cost of getting that to my home and doing those calculations? And there was a book that came out, uh, How Bad Are Bananas, I think it was, The Carbon Footprint of Everything. And when I was living in on Maui for a while, I borrowed a friend's car, which was a beater truck that I was driving into the ground and there were a hundred things wrong with the beater truck. And it actually hit me that driving that truck into the ground was probably causing less destruction to the planet than if I'd gone off and bought a new Prius that was made from scratch. Because the, the new Prius would emit less, but you'd have to build the new Prius. Right, you you have to get all the metals for the new for the new Prius or whatever you know your electric car is, and you're putting a new car into the world and bringing a new car to life. Uh, Rex Weiler, one of the founders of Greenpeace, has talked about this about reuse things, use things till they end, as opposed to replacing them with new things. And I think it's that's just it isn't how humans are wired. Yeah, it's absolutely true. It's pretty hilarious. You see electric cars with a uh, license plate on the back that says zero emissions. And it's like the majority of emissions that actually come, that are involved in a vehicle, come from the manufacturing of the vehicle. It's not what comes out the tailpipe. So yeah, making a brand new electric car is far worse for the environment than driving the car that you currently have, even if it's emitting carbon. What surprised you most about what 
is and isn't working with green tech? I never thought it was like a foolproof solution to the problems facing the natural world, but I, I definitely, before making this film, had no idea just how bad it really was. Like the statistics absolutely shock me. Um, by 2050, it's expected to be the number one cause of habitat destruction. There's so much, I mean, when you think about the quantity of, of like mass of things that they have to manufacture in order to, to complete these goals of having a 100% renewable world, um, just the millions and millions of wind turbines and millions and millions of solar panels. And you think about all the mining that has to go into that, all of the destruction, um, the biggest shock for me was actually learning that the production of so-called green technology is probably one of the largest, it is the largest upcoming threat to the ocean. And, you know, I spent a, three years making an entire film about what's happening to the ocean. And it's towards the end of making Bright Green Lies that I learned this is a huge problem. They want to actually mine the deep sea in order to get at the materials that they want to use to make batteries for electric cars and batteries for energy storage for things like solar and wind on the grid. Um, this is a huge disaster that is coming down the line. The ocean is, it has become the next sacrifice zone in the name of saving the planet. And they're calling it the largest mining operation in history that's about to begin. This should terrify everybody. I mean, this is gonna, completely mess up the ocean that we depend on for survival. And what, so people can drive electric cars and feel good about themselves and think they're saving the planet. But I don't want to spoil something from the movie, but can you talk, are you okay to talk a little bit more? Because that horrified me. It horrifies me too, like nothing else. And yeah, I'm trying to talk as much about that as you want to. So some of the estimates that have been coming out, deep sea mining hasn't really started yet. It's getting started. There's some exploratory mining going on. Um, but so there are studies coming out that are saying that uh, each mining vessel, when deep sea mining begins, will probably release between two to six million cubic feet of sediments uh, slurry into the ocean every day. So they're vacuuming up stuff from very deep in the ocean. They're bringing it on board sifting out what they want from it and sending a whole bunch of crap back into the ocean. It's going to toxify the food web. It's going to mess with the lighting situation, which could potentially disrupt the plankton who produce most of the oxygen in the air that we breathe. It's going to absolutely drive some species extinct in the deep sea and ruin entire communities down there that we know hardly anything about. Um, it is just messing with every level of the ocean. Like all this sediments is gonna have impacts everywhere. And it is messing with some, some cycles that are just so fundamental and important to the functioning of the planet. Um, I'm amazed that this is, I mean, I'm not amazed at all that this is happening because it's like nothing surprises me anymore. Um, we live in such a horribly destructive culture. But it's just like, really, we're gonna, they're good, they're gonna mine the deep sea? Are you kidding? I don't know, it's a horrible disaster and it needs to be stopped before it gets started.
Now, can you talk about who's doing this and what we can do to help stop this? Because I think that would be an amazing thing to work on. Actually, it's Canadian company. Um, <laughs> who's actually doing this? Who do we need to know about? One of the main companies that is pushing to mine the deep sea right now is one called Deep Green Metals, and they're based in Vancouver, Canada. Um, there was another Canadian-based company that had actually started the process of mining in Papua New Guinea. They had done some exploratory things. They ended up going bankrupt and left Papua New Guinea with a lot of debt, but the people there never wanted the deep sea mining to take place. So it's a you know great thing that they folded, but yeah, this company called Deep Green Metals is is really leading the charge to mine the deep sea right now. It's pretty funny because if you look on their website, they've got this great little you know short video talking about how deep sea mining is going to save the world, and they're going to use it to um, put batteries in electric cars and you know power the transition to renewable energy. So. They're also arguing that it'll take pressure off of land-based mining and it'll cause no harm because it's just in the ocean. So, you know, not a, not a big deal. <laughs> it's pretty nuts. Um, good for a, a laugh if you want to watch that video. Sorry, so no, there will be no harm whatsoever because it's in the ocean? Right. That's, that's the idea that they're trying to get across. Completely counter to reality. Yeah. That's fantastic. Good to know that no harm can possibly be done in the ocean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, in case people want to direct their energy towards maybe actually stopping this, I don't know. Um, okay, I think that's a fabulous plan. So, all right, if you give me details, I will share them in our show notes that people can can dig in because this is just horrifying. And what are we, can you talk again about what we're, mining the deep seas and putting the entire planet at risk for? Batteries for electric cars and energy storage for solar and wind. For green stuff. Awesome. Yeah, I remember real discovering that uh, we were cutting down the Amazon rainforests to grow more soy. And I'm going, oh my god, we are destroying the rainforest to make food for hippies to save the rainforest. The, my head wanted to explode when I wrapped my head around that. I was like, we're taking down the rainforest to make tofu. Nobody who... Well, that's why it is actually eaten by cattle. Oh, yeah. good. Tofu as well, but yeah, the majority of it is cattle feed. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so we're not... So it's not it's not all going to hippies. It's actually going to cows. That makes me ever so slightly better. Uh, that just feels slightly less insane. Now, can you talk about some of the discoveries you made doing Sea of Life? Because most young people doing environmental documentaries, they come out upbeat and, you know, we're going to save everything. You did not come out of your you know, your adventures all upbeat and going, the world's awesome, it's going to be saved. So can you talk about that journey? Yeah, if someone comes out thinking everything's awesome, I guess they weren't paying a lot of attention. Um, no, yeah, I had some really um, just sobering experiences, speaking to just having candid conversations with 
some of the top scientists who were studying coral reefs and they're telling me, yeah, even if we stopped uh, releasing carbon, it's like if we stopped all fossil fuel burning today, there's so much in the atmosphere already that it's probably gonna wipe out all of the coral reefs because um, there's kind of a lag time with how it gets absorbed into the ocean. So that was horrific to learn. And yeah, um, all sorts of things about the, the path that we're on. Um, which is, that's one of the reasons why I hate the idea that we have a carbon budget. You know, people talk about a carbon budget as if there's some more carbon that we can put into the atmosphere. It's like, okay, there's already, we're, we're in carbon debt. There's too much. This doesn't make any sense. And, you know, that's one of the things they want to do with this carbon budget is use it to manufacture all this winds and solar. It's like, no, we have to stop emitting it. I mean, to me, the most horrific discovery about oceans when I've been working on whales, gyres, gyres, gyres just give me nightmares. Um, the idea of these plastic gyres that are the size of, you know, countries. And you go, wow, all of the trash in the oceans just swirling there. And I collect stories on the fact that we are finding plastic everywhere and that we are all eating plastic just to to me it's the plastic stuff in the gyres that rocked my world and really shook me up and i'm wondering if there was anything that sort of stood out and shook you up like that it was definitely the acidification thing and it was also the fact that um a lot of the things that these scientists were predicting to me like the things that would happen to coral reefs ended up happening and happening even faster and even worse than what they were saying was going to happen um, which always seems to be the case. Um, so the mass leaching that took place on the Great Barrier Reef that happened at the very end of when I was making Sea of Life. And then we've had a couple more since then, and so they've been even more severe. Um, they can't recover when it happens in that quick succession, like one after another. Um, fishing hasn't stopped. <laughs> It's only intensifying. Everything is getting worse. Like, yeah, I don't have too much good to say. And the a big part of the process with Sea of Life was um, getting rid of the kind of illusion that, that protesting was gonna somehow solve things or that governments would make the right decisions if we just asked them to. Um, I kind of, yeah, spent those three years going to all these big, uh, rallies and events leading up to COP21. I was like, yeah, we're gonna put pressure on governments. And COP21 was like largely promoted as a success for the environment, which if you actually read it, it's not. And especially if you know the stuff about um, what's gonna come out in Bright Green Lies, um, pretty much the only thing they committed to and the whole two degrees, 1.5 degrees thing, there's already enough carbon in the atmosphere we're gonna probably pass those. But um, the they don't mention any of the causes of emissions in the Paris Agreement. They use the word sustainable development a whole bunch of times, which is an oxymoron. And the commitment is to invest a bunch of money in green technology. So that's not going to turn out well. So, you know, people always, what I've noticed since COP and since the Paris Agreement is that people will use that 
as a benchmark for whether countries are doing enough. And they'll always ask, you know, is Canada doing enough to live up to the commitments it made in the Paris Agreement? It's like, well, yeah, so they didn't commit to doing anything that's actually going to save the planet. They committed to invest in green tech, which is not green. Um, wow. Uh, I mean, there's this incredible movement that we're seeing where people want to be fighting for something. And as you've said, what we're fighting for and what people are carrying protests signs for uh, are essentially technologies. So if you were going to tell all the, you know, the Fridays for the Future kids who you are, you know, pretty much the same age as, what they should be care, what should be on those signs, what would you like to see people protesting for or against to move the dial and save the planet? You know, I think already a lot of what's on their signs is what's correct. I mean, they're there because they care about their futures. They want to protect life on the planet. They know what's going on. And I think their priorities are in the right place. The problem is that these large organizations that are putting on the events and that are putting out the official demands online are saying, we want subsidies for the renewable energy sector. And so the energy and the passion of the youth is being co-opted and funneled into these ends that are not helpful to the planet at all. Um, that's a really disturbing and horrible thing that's happening. So I hope that, yeah, people will realize this and take back the movement and make it really officially about protecting life on the planet and, and really be not okay with those organizations that are trying to do otherwise. Um, we should be furious that the movement has been so co-opted and it is, it is, at this point, a betrayal of the natural world. Now, what, what would you see as the solution to pushing groups to change their priorities? What's the shift? A big part of the problem with the large groups is that they're taking a lot of funding from either green tech companies or billionaires or foundations that are supportive of those ideas. We don't have a lot of power in terms of changing that side of things. But then there's the other side, which is the volunteers, the individuals, the donor base of regular people. So they can demand that that change or that they go find another organization or start their own. So that separation probably needs to happen because it's not an environmental movement if it's pushing for so-called green technology. As contradictory as that seems, it's not. So that needs to be gotten rid of. And if they'll change willingly, that's great. And if they won't, go find a new organization to join. There's lots of good little ones out there that can really use your help. Wow. Uh, what are some of the other like things that sort of go against what our intuition is in terms of carbon emissions? I don't know. There's probably lots of them. Um, I think just the, the absolute largest one is the displacement paradox, because people think that that the energy from solar panels and wind turbines, it'll be added to the grid and then there'll be less energy used from fossil fuels. 
And just looking at the graph, going back through the entire history of energy usage, and everything stacks on top of everything else. It's like started out just burning wood, then you add coal. Okay, we don't see any less wood being burned, and then you add, you know, nuclear, hydro, whatever. It's just everything is stacking on top. And I think that's really counter to the idea that a lot of people have in their heads. They think we just need to mass produce a whole bunch of solar and wind, and then there's somehow going to be less fossil fuels used. And that's just not what's happening if you look at any evidence or data. In your work, what was there one kind of energy that stood out as greener, never mind greenest? But was there anything that you went, okay? If we're gonna, even if we're we're you know powering down, what what would we power down to in an ideal world? Caloric energy, like the energy you eat something and then you have energy and then you do you do work. <laughs> I don't think there's any kind of green form of industrial energy. Awesome, no challenges there. Uh, so. What do you see, you know, let's talk about solutions or pivots or what we should be doing to save the planet. Okay, well, first of all, we need to really understand what is and isn't going to work. And, you know, that's why I thought it was so important to make this film. Like, the idea that we have so many people who care deeply about what's happening to the natural world but their energy and their efforts are being diverted into you know figuring out how to funnel subsidies towards wind and solar like that is so much potential that is there for people to be doing good things and it's just being wasted on something that's gonna further the destruction of the planet so we need people going out and actually stopping the activities that are destroying life on the planet and we need to work to bring back nature in every place we can and you know to clear the way that the nature can come back because it'll mostly do that on its own we don't we don't really need to be too involved in that but i mean i've seen places in the ocean where there was almost nothing and the fish came back and all this life i mean this life on the planet is the solution because life wants to live and it will, and, and life sequesters an enormous amount of carbon. So prairies sequester carbon, forests sequester carbon, seagrass beds, uh, fish sequester carbon, and they also excrete things called gut rocks, which help make the ocean less acidic, which is something I learned after making Sea of Life. And you know, there's 90% less fish in the ocean than there should be. So if you brought all those back, it would have a huge impact. And Forests and prairies, 90 something percent of them are gone. It's like there is so much potential to actually turn things around, and it doesn't involve pumping out these technologies and manufacturing a bunch of technological crap that's gonna, you know, be worse for nature. It actually just involves making the world um, beautiful again and full of life and helping it to be what it wants to be. Okay, so. Is there anybody you feel is doing this right? Is there a country that you're looking at that you're going, this is a good model? Is there somewhere that we should be looking to as aspirational? Definitely there are people who are getting it right. And those are 
traditional indigenous communities all around the world. They're the people who always have been and are examples of ways to live in balance with the natural world. I don't think I could name, I don't know of any country that is getting things right, but I think that's because the institution of a country, generally they're primarily concerned with growing their economy and that happens at the expense of the natural world. Um, but there's definitely so many examples of human communities that are that are living sustainably. Now, it's interesting because we're having you on just pretty much just after interviewing Joel Bacan about the new corporation and him talking about corporations as psychopaths. Are there any corporations who you are looking at and going, well, this is better than nothing or uh, like are there any corporations you're looking at and you're thinking they're at least trying or doing something in the right direction? I haven't spent a whole lot of time looking at corporations. I have heard good things about Patagonia. Um, I think they put a lot of money towards conservation of land and funding environmentally focused things. Um, I think they're trying to do good, but for the most part, corporations are not too good. I mean, yeah, the fact that they've been given the rights of persons and that I mean yeah you could we could go on and have a whole conversation about but I, which I'm sure you did with the people from the corporation so I don't know if I want to go down that whole road but yeah now this is a question that I ask everybody and I realize I'm not sure have you ever did you ever encounter whales when you were doing save life I can't remember if you did I did encounter whales just from a boat um one of the coolest moments actually was I was on a boat waiting for sharks to show up. And we were in this area that, uh, you know, 30 years ago, there were loads of sharks and you would just see so many sharks off the back of the boat. That's the stories they were telling anyway. And we were out for like eight hours waiting on this boat. I was just trying to have a sleep on the deck, uh, just kind of rocking back and forth. And then all of a sudden I hear this whoosh sound and I look over and there's this whale has just taken a breath and there's a steam in the air and I got to watch this whale kind of swim by for a little bit. So that was a nice surprise in an otherwise very boring day. Was that the first time you saw a whale? Um, nope. The first time I saw a whale was, um, I was in BC and I was on like a whale watching thing. Do you remember anything about that? Well, yeah, I saw lots of whales. I saw their tails. I mean, that was like, I was expecting to see whales and I saw whales. So, and it was cool. <laughs> but yeah, my favorite was just like the unexpected thank you surprise from the ocean. Very cool. Do you remember what kind of whale it was? It was uh, the second largest species of whales. Is it a fin whale? I think they wow. said it was a fin whale. But Cool. Let's end off with what advice would you give to people who want to do what's best for the planet? My advice is learn as much as you can about what's happening and get started right away. The world is, there is so much horrible stuff going on that pretty much anywhere you look, there's meaningful work to be done. We need to be opposing so many things. We need to be doing the absolute biggest and most important things we can think of. And 
be bold and come up with ideas that are larger than you might think is something you can do. Yeah, we really need people to step up. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do. Thank you so much for doing this and thank you so much for doing all the work that you do. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks again for checking out Scanna. Julia's movie is available now. For details, check out Scanna.org or brightgreenlines.com. We've also got a couple of articles by Julia on our Medium site, which is a perfect place for you to share your thoughts on this episode. Scanna is produced in Saanich, BC, traditional territories of the Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. If you like this podcast and want to help us share more stories about orcas, oceans, ethics, and the environment more often, please join Scanna's pod at patreon.com. Now, I don't think I've ever really gotten into what you're helping us do here at Scanna, because until recently, I'm not sure I realized what you were helping us do. Yeah, you're helping us pay the expenses involved in making the podcast, but You've also helped create a platform that makes it possible for me to do interviews like the one that just ran on the front page of the province in Vancouver, British Columbia. When you read the story, you may find yourself asking some of the same questions I did when reporter Randy Shore called me to talk about the Southern Resident Orcas. Yeah, I've been fighting for these whales for a while, and I've written four books about whales, and I guess that makes me an expert, but that's not why he called me. Here's the thing, and it hit me really hard this week when I was interviewing the unsinkable salmon advocate Alexandra Morton for an upcoming episode of Scanna. Buy her book now, just trust me on this. The Vancouver Sun and the province and other media call me because there are things that I can and will say that people with more knowledge and expertise than I have can't and won't. Most of the ORCA experts in BC work for the federal government or receive grants directly from the federal government. So guess who they can't and won't criticize when that government is not enforcing essential laws. Thanks to this platform, I can talk about this and I will continue to do so. Scanna is funded by patrons including Robert Anderson, Nancy Campbell, Darren Lern Young, Solomon Siegel, and Yosef Wask and also by Rain and I volunteering our time because orcas are freaking awesome. So if you like what we're doing and like supporting independent voices for orcas and oceans, feel free to join this list at patreon.com backslash Scanna. You can also support us at Scanna.org with one-time donations through Ko-fi.com. If this doesn't work for you, I'm Bill Maher, and this is Real Time. Scanna is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of my three books about whales for younger readers, Orcas of the Salish Sea and Big Whales Small World, both of which were selected by the Canadian Children's Book Centre for their list of 2020's Best Books for Kids and Teens, and Orcas Everywhere, winner of the City of Victoria's Children's Book Prize. Please subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter so you don't miss upcoming episodes with guests like world-renowned primatologist Franz DeWall, author of Mama's Last Hug, Alexandra Morton, talking about her new book, 
and several amazing shark experts. We'll also be featuring some special stories about the Royal BC Museum's exhibit, Orcas, Our Shared Future, which I wrote. Be sure to check out our show notes at Scanna.org and our Scanna magazine on Medium. Follow us on social media and share this show with your friends. Heck, share it with everyone. And reviews on your favorite podcast provider are always appreciated. Scanna is produced by the always awesome Rainbow. Our epic associate producer is Isabella Almashi. Thanks to web wizard Katie Brown, social media maven Liz Flick-Bellis, and researcher and Scanna strategist extraordinaire Brian Murphy. This episode's audio engineer, Rain Badu. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. And we thought we'd end off this episode with the trailer for Julia's movie, Bright Green Lies. We're in the midst of a sixth major extinction of life on this planet. Paper or plastic is really not the question at this point. It's life versus a bare rock. High voltage, keep out authorized personnel. What's going on back here? This movement that was so honorable and so impassioned has turned into something completely different. It's all become, how do we continue to fuel this destruction? There is a push for a 100% renewable world. What they don't talk about are the unseen harms caused by these technologies. You may not directly be seeing any smoke come out of any smokestacks, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. Companies are involved in these activities to make money. They're not trying to displace or change other things. What they're actually talking about is sustaining high energy ways of life at the expense of the natural world. I'm not comfortable with an industry that deceives me about something as important as climate change. They claim it is good for the environment when actually it is harmful for the environment. The shit ain't green.